For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. It is Wednesday, September 27th. They're back. The writer's strike officially ended at 12.01 this morning. The WGA is set to vote to ratify the contract. And we finally got a look last night at the all-important terms of their deal. And they're pretty good. The writers got wage increases, 5% in the first year, gains in both domestic and foreign residuals, a bunch of other financial improvements. Those are similar to what the Directors Guild got. That was negotiated without a five-month strike, of course. But there's a lot more here that wasn't offered to the writers back on May 1st. On the issues we've talked about in the show, they've got specific language in there that AI can't write or rewrite literary material. And AI-generated material will not be considered source material. That's important for the credit process. It basically means that AI-generated materials can't undermine a writer's credit. On the issue of minimum staffing for TV shows, that's the number of writers the studios are required to hire, the writers got a sliding scale of three to six writers, depending on how many episodes. That's less than they asked for, but many people in town, myself included, didn't think they'd get anything significant on that issue. There's also a guarantee to hire writer-producers throughout the process, which from people I've talked to is a big win. And then the transparency issue, my hobby horse. Remember, the Guild wanted access to the data on how many people are watching these shows and movies, and they wanted a residuals bonus for high-performing content. The metric they settled on is a bonus for originals if 20% of a streaming service's subscribers watch the show or movie within 90 days. And the streamers agreed to disclose to the Guild the number of hours these program or movie was streamed worldwide. We'll get into what that actually means. There's other stuff in this deal, and a lot of things that were considered non-starters at the beginning for the studios ended up actually happening, or at least a version happened. The Guild says the deal is valued at $233 million a year. That's up significantly from what was initially offered to them, but about half what they initially wanted. A compromise, yes, but I think it's pretty clearly a win for the writers in several areas. It's just a question of how big and where the wiggle room is for the studios. That's what we're talking about today. We've got Adam Conover back on the show. In addition to being a writer-performer, he had his own show, Adam Ruins Everything. He's on the WGA board and the negotiating committee. He came in at the start of the strike to argue for us why this strike was necessary. And now he's back to defend what they got and acknowledge what they didn't. And whether this deal actually will translate into more money and better opportunities for writers. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Adam Conover, who has graciously agreed to come back on the show. He was here at the very beginning of the strike in May. 
talked a little bit about what this strike was about, what they wanted, and we thought it would be great to have him back to talk about what the writers actually got in this deal. Adam, welcome. Hey, I'm so thrilled to be here, especially after being under a cone of silence for many months, hearing pundits talk and, you know, knowing what the truth was on the inside. It's finally good, great to be able to You can to say me. Share. You can say hearing me talk. <laughs> You're not the only one, but, you know, people, people do what they have with the information they have, so. Yeah. You are not, I assume, on the holiday card list of Carol Lombardini, the head of the AMPTP. Uh, is that a, a safe assumption? Yeah, you know, Carol sent me a card every year for the last 10 years, and it's something I've really treasured, but I'm I'm a little bit worried you're that, off. that there's going to be an empty list. spot on my mantle. Yes, you're <laughs> off the list. Okay, so you have been very vocal about a lot of the gains that you guys have made. I have read through the details that were released last night. A lot of gains, like... I was surprised in certain areas, some of the things that you guys got. So give me your impression of the most important gains that you think this contract makes for writers. Well, the first most important thing is that we made gains for every single category of writer, including those writers who they often want to give us less, like screenwriters, comedy variety writers who work in late night. We delivered for those writers as well as television writers for soap opera writers. And it's different gains for each one of those areas because each of those writers had different needs. Give me the biggest gain for screenwriters, because I've had a number of them reach out to me saying even they were surprised at some of the protections and some of the increases they got. Sure. So, and I say this not as a screenwriter, so I hope I represent their issue well, but the biggest gain is a guaranteed second step in their contracts, which is something that screenwriters used to sort of count on. It was one of those uh, standard operating procedure things that was in every contract that the studios slowly took away piece after piece until now everyone is on one-step deals. So that's a draft, meaning you sell a script and then the second draft, which is typical, you would get paid extra for. Correct. It's a, it's a second payment step. And so that is guaranteed money for screenwriters working under 200% of minimum. So it's the screenwriters who are working closest to our minimums and need the help the most. That's something that we've wanted for at least a decade, if not more. Something that we tried to get very hard was weekly pay. We did not get all the way there, but we got payment distributed over the course of the contract rather than all at the beginning and all at the end, which helps protect those writers from free work and also helps cash flow while they're working on a project for many, many months, sometimes years on end. All right. So give us some other gains that you think are important, having been in the room negotiating this stuff. I mean, the biggest gain is the success-based streaming residual. This is something that they absolutely did not want to give us, that they told us they would not give us. Right. And we cracked the safe, right? We got the very first success-based streaming residual. We want it for us, but it's quickly going to go to the other unions as well, I'm sure. So um, it's very similar to when we got coverage of the internet for the first time in 2008. Uh, it's that important of a protection. And the terms this time are not an enormous amount of money for every single show. But the fact is that we created the framework and that in subsequent negotiations, we're going to enlarge it just like we did after we first won coverage of the internet. It took us a couple cycles. Or even cycles. Residuals, yeah. residuals back in 1960. Correct. Those weren't huge to start, but you gained on that. So let's talk about the transparency because this has been my big issue and something that I think that the Guild has should have gone after years ago, and I'm happy they finally got something. But the terms here are, you get a bonus if your show or movie is watched by 20% of a streaming service's subscribers within the first 90 days. And it applies only to original content. So not suits, not stuff that's licensed. It's originals for streaming service. If 20% of the people that subscribe to that service watch it within the first 90 days, you get a bonus as a minimum residual. 
Correct. Characterizing that right? And in subsequent years, the same is true. So, okay. you know, the year of release and the next year and the next year and the next year. Okay. So why 20%? And did you get some data or assurances from the studio side as to how many shows and movies actually crossed that threshold? First of all, yes, they did provide us with a count of this is the number of shows that... that what is caught. it? It varies depending on the service, and it's not something that I can recite off the top of my head. Um, but we but is also, it a lot? I mean, like, how, how often is this going to happen? It's going to happen pretty frequently for every single uh, streamer. But the point is, Matt, that this is a framework, right? That these numbers, 20%, 90 days, what the bonus is, these are things that we can go negotiate on in subsequent years. Again, as you alluded to, if you look at the original residuals pattern from 1960, it's not that generous, but every single year you enlarge it. And just getting the basic framework was such a huge lift. Again, it is the crack in the safe door. And, you know, you, you spoke to transparency as being the thing you've harped upon, and I understand why uh, everybody wants to see these numbers. But what we're excited about is we got the fucking money, and that's yeah. what you want the transparency sure. for. Right. So it's a really huge victory, and it's something that we only got because of member power, because our members demanded it, and because SAG-AFTRA members went on strike for the same issue. They had a different success-based residual proposal, but because they also went on strike for it, the companies knew there was no way they could get out of this strike without giving a success-based residual, and they kicked and screamed, but they gave it to us as they did on so many other issues. And that was not in the August proposal that was leaked by the studios? No. In August, they proposed us the sort of confidential transparency. Right. Oh, right. Yes. yes, Numbers and six people at the guild can look at them. And that's about it. So I'm thinking about how practically this will play out because knowing the services, services like Apple TV Plus, there are shows that are watched by a lot of those subscribers. And then there are shows that are watched by none something like The Morning Show or Ted Lasso, a big percentage of Apple TV subscribers are watching those shows. I wonder how it's going to apply to the various streamers, meaning is this a threshold that a lot of Netflix shows can meet? Did you get some idea of how practically this is going to play out? Yes. So first of all, a lot of Netflix shows cross this threshold. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, because this is now a contractual term, this is something that we're going to be able to audit We're going to be able to go to arbitration and we're going to be able to enforce. And that is what the guild does year round. We say, like, currently we have, you know, uh, arbitration cases or enforcement cases with many of the streamers about their subscriber numbers because they already try to, you know, play a little, you know, funky math with them. And so, of course, they're going to do that on this as well. The current streaming residuals are based on the domestic subscriber number, which you guys have to audit, you say. Exactly. And the companies are already playing with those. If you look at the way that Max or Apple or even Netflix count their subscribers, that's something that we have to be active with. You know, this is an active sport. And so we don't just trust their numbers. We go in and we audit it using publicly available data, our own research. We take them to court over it or more more often arbitration. But what we have done here is we have opened up the field of play of that mm-hmm. battle so that now we have jurisdiction over this uh, these success-based residuals and we can wage that battle on behalf of writers every day. And the other unions will hopefully be able to follow suit. And the specific language for the transparency, meaning what they have to turn over to the guild, is total number of hours streamed, both domestically and internationally. And it says here, I'm going to quote from your summary of the agreement, the guild may share information with the membership in aggregated form. What does that mean? 
Look, that's a question that if I want to give you a firm answer to on exactly what that's going to look like beyond what we've released, I have to go ask our staff who negotiated the exact contract right. language. It's maybe a little bit too much detail for a 20-minute conversation. Sure, that's, fine. <laughs> that's fine. But you understand why I'm interested in this because this is the clause that is potentially going to allow this data to be reported on by people like me. And I understand, we might Matt, get to see that. But hey, Matt, maybe you got to start a industry journalism union because, you know, we are not <laughs> fighting for the needs of journalists like yourselves. And those are real needs. And I would love to see that information, too. We're fighting for writers. Well, but you benefit from this stuff being public. You do. We do. And look, more data is going to come out over time. Advertising is coming back into the industry, as we discussed last time I was on the show. Yeah. Advertisers demand data. Wall Street's going to demand more data. They're not going to be able to keep this stuff in a lockbox forever. And I just reject that it was the Writers Guild's responsibility to open the box on public data for literally everybody else in town. We're fighting for our members, and that's a big enough job. And, you know, we delivered for them hugely this year. And they delivered for us by staying on strike. All right, let's move on to AI. So AI, the terms of the deal is that AI cannot write or rewrite literary material and AI generated material will not be considered source material under the contract. That means that AI generated material can't be used in the guild's words to undermine a writer's credit or their separated rights, which are very valuable. So what was the fight in the room about? Because this sounds kind of similar to what the DGA got in terms of they can't be replaced by AI. What was the fight over? I mean, first of all, this is much stronger than what the DGA got because okay. the DGA got just this language about an individual director cannot be replaced by AI without yeah. talking about the work product of those direct, you know, saying that like, oh, the person can't be replaced is not that strong. We got protections that literally our work product cannot be generated by AI. We can also not be forced to adapt the work of AI. If the companies ever give us any AI material in research or in any other, any other part of the process, they have to disclose to us that it was made by AI. And that can't be the subject of a reduced credit, meaning exactly you know, right. the credit for adapted is less than original. So you cannot have your credit reduced if you are given a stack of AI material. Or your compensation, right? If someone says, hey, I got chat GPT to output a paragraph I like, adapt it, or a whole novel or whatever, if you're the writer, you are still writing an original screenplay. You're not writing an adapted screenplay because someone, you know, gave you some magnetic poetry to base it off of. Right. And this is what came down to the final negotiation that last weekend. If I am reporting this correctly, that you guys were discussing what the studios can use written material to do with AI, meaning that can they use your scripts to train language models? And this is an area where you guys, if I'm reading this correctly, kind of punted. You said the WGA reserves the right to assert that exploitation of writers' material to train AI is prohibited. This is a very fast-moving area, right? Very difficult to put up hard boundaries because no one knows what AI is going to be trained to do, like what the particular revenue streams are. And so our assertion and, and the right that we reserve is that if they are going to exploit writer material for compensation or a way that hurts writers, we reserve our rights under both the MBA and, and under copyright law to object or to negotiate over that. And that's pretty strong language. Now, that was the final point that it came down to because the companies didn't agree among themselves. And, you know, that was, was a bunch of lawyers going back and forth, right? Every deal's got that one last little point where you're like, come, come the fuck on, you know, can right. we just get this done? It turned out to be that one here. 
we're extremely happy with the protections that we got on AI in this deal. They're very strong. And it means that in three years, we're going to be fighting about this again. <laughs> well, it remains to be seen whether this marketing term, AI, that describes a bunch of loosely related technologies, which so far are not really being used for much of a purpose at all, are actually going to turn into a market. And that's why we renegotiate every three years. And that's why we fight, you know, 365 days a year. Remember webisodes from exactly. 2008? That was the yes. big sticking point. Right. Is the office still making uh, five minute YouTube shorts? Is that the, you know, I, the big I area of concern? I don't believe so. Yeah, I don't believe so. As the markets develop, we see what happens. We see where writers need to be protected. And we got the strongest protections we possibly could. And the reason is because the AMPTP inflamed our membership on this issue so much by refusing to negotiate over it. It yeah. became one of the most important issues. And so the companies had to give us strong terms or else we wouldn't even be able to get this contract ratified. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Let's talk about minimum staffing. Let's do because it. Because this is an area where the devil will be in the details and how this is interpreted. Could you just tell me, Matt? I'm sorry. You said on yeah. this show so many times, it's a non-starter. I know. No, no. I didn't it. say non-starter. I never used the word on non-starter. Okay. I said this was not the hill to die on. And that if it came down to negotiating bigger gains in wages and the transparency issue, this was the one to let drop away. And you didn't. And to your credit, you got protections here. So let's go over them. Well, and you're wrong. Um, it was the hill to die on or it was one of the hills to die on because <laughs> okay, the companies, fine. as I told you on the show, yes. are, were trying to eliminate the writer's room. And if they had done that, they would have moved us onto a freelance model. Writers would have been making a fraction of what they were, and this would have turned into a gig job. And so the point of the minimum staffing was to require the existence of a writer's room in order to maintain the middle-class way of life that TV writers have enjoyed for a generation. And we fucking did it. It's in the contract. All right, so let's talk about what you got. There's minimum number of writers are three for shows with six or fewer episodes, five writers for shows that are seven to 12, and six writers for shows that are 13 episodes plus. That includes the showrunner. Not as much as you wanted. You of must course. concede that. But you did get these guarantees in. And from people that I've talked to, it's the writer-producer requirement that is actually the biggest win here. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, first of all, we had a new tier established for writer-producers. You know, there's story editors, there's all the different tiers of the rank that you can have in a writer's room. Uh, we established a new tier for writer-producers, which gives them a higher minimum weekly rate. So that's a, a big win for writers generally. But by requiring a certain number of writer-producers, we are creating an incentive to, you know, promote people, to take lower-level writers and to move them up through the ranks. Because that is when, in our uh, industry, that is when you actually really start making a strong living. So you divide it up into the pre-green light writer room and the post-green light, meaning the right. mini room and the actual room. Do you fear that with now there being requirements on these mini rooms and pre-green light rooms, do you think that studios might just say, like, no, let's just not do that. Let's just say to the showrunner, you write it. This could actually lead to fewer 
mini rooms? First of all, we have a requirement that if there is a mini room now, there must also be a writer's room so they can no longer have an entire show be written purely in a in a mini room. Right, but I'm talking vice versa, meaning they just say, okay, we did the mini room thing. We're just not going to do that now. You're the showrunner. Write the pilot. Sketch it out what the show's going to be. And then we will have a real room. Well, then if they do that, then they have to have a writer's room where everyone's paid more and they're kept on longer and there's a larger requirement of writers. So it works both ways. Look, there's a lot of questions that some folks have raised about these provisions. Hold on a second. It's this many weeks. It's this many writers. Yeah. What if a show does X, Y, and then you come up with a scenario where wouldn't this be worse, right? And the fact is, this is a industry where the details change over time. And if we see that an abuse crops up, we'll go after it in three years and in six years and in nine years, because that's what we do. Yeah, I'm trying to find the holes where they can screw you. Right. And <laughs> look, there's always going to be a hole somewhere. And these are capitalists you're talking about. Their entire job is to find the holes and screw you. And our job as a union is to play defense and to plug those holes. And so that battle is never going to end. There is also a caveat here. There's an exception made for shows that are written by one person, the Mike White rule. Is that something that you guys fought in the room? And when did you let that go? So it became clear that was the way to get these provisions, right? That the companies demanded this exception and we found a version of that we could live with. That's a compromise. And folks like you on podcasts love to urge the value of compromise. Why won't they just compromise? So I hope you'll, you'll give us our little <laughs> compromise trophy. I'm happy you're listening. <laughs> I love the show. But the fact is that this was always a side issue because the number of shows that are written by one person is so vanishingly small. Almost no writers want to do it. Almost no writers are capable of doing it. Almost no executives want a writer to do it because how are you going to control the end product when you can't just hire, you know, a handsome newbie writer, you know, every single script by themselves. Right. No, it's a small group of yeah. writers, but they do exist and they're very powerful, these writers. You know, Taylor Sheridan, David Kelly, like these are formidable writers. Name more, you know, like name more people who do this. Uh, there we go. See, this This is my point, right? This is, yeah, this is I mean, I, I'm what sure they're out there and, and maybe there'll be more now. But yeah, you're right. You're right. It is a small, but you know, Taylor Sheridan has 10 shows. Yeah, well, <laughs> talk to a script coordinator. <laughs> um, oh, like, <laughs> that's quite an allegation there. Are you saying that he has other people writing under his name? Look, te television is a team sport, right? Uh -huh. And so it's a very small number of people who work this way. And yeah. allowing this very narrow exception, that allowed us to protect 99% of writers out there. And we're happy with that, right? And again, if an, if an abuse crops up, then we'll be able to plug it later. By the way, there was some reporting on uh, David Young helping you guys close the deal, the former lead negotiator. Is that true? Was he helping you guys? Well, first of all, there was no reporting on that because what was reported on was that there was a wild rumor that was spread. And let me tell you, as someone in the room, no, it fucking wasn't, man. <laughs> like David Young was not involved. <laughs> no, he is on medical leave um, and he was he's not involved in the process whatsoever. And by the way, can I just say yeah. that that rumor is fundamentally sexist because Ellen Stutzman, who's been worked at the Guild for 17 years, worked at David Young's side for a decade, right? Mm -hmm. Handled this entire negotiation, brought in the biggest deal that writers have had in decades, tripled the company's initial offer, went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Carol and the rest of them every single day. She's an absolutely incredible negotiator. And the idea that people were spreading a rumor that David Young was coming in and like doing it for her is fundamentally sexist and offensive to all of us who are in the room. 
I think it was coming from the studio side that they were just frustrated that you guys weren't closing the deal. That you oh yeah, you had, think you that the scurrilous, you think the scurrilous sexist rumor was started by the studio side? I agree. <laughs> I think it I, probably. Was. I don't know. I don't I mean that's your characterization. I'm just saying that there was frustration on the studio side that you guys were coming back with asks late in the process. We that's did not saying. come back with asks late in the process. Okay. What happened was we brought them our initial proposals and said, we are still holding on these proposals. And they hadn't looked at them in a while. And they said, wait, what are these proposals? We said, these have been on the table the whole time. And they said, we don't know what these are. And that is the little back and forth that you're talking about. We never brought new proposals late in the game. That's false. Okay. So when you look at this deal and you are going to now sell it to your membership, what is the big win? What is the one thing that you are going to dine out on and say, I can't believe we got that? I don't think there's a single big win in here because what we said from the beginning was the difficulty of this negotiation is we need five, six, seven big wins in order to protect writers. And we got them. All right. Now I'm going to ask you to be self-reflective here and <laughs> put on your transparency cap yourself. What did you not get that you really wanted? We wanted stronger weekly pay for screenwriters. That's something that they deserve. It's, it was a zero-cost proposal for the companies. We got halfway there. We'll try to finish the job later. Comedy variety writers and daytime writers, people who work in Appendix A under a contract like myself, have the worst residual in streaming. We were not able to improve it. We were not able to guarantee that writers be paid as writers during post. All right, Mike Schur was talking about that with us early in the strike. That was but we point. did get a guarantee that writers be kept on during production, which is you know really, really powerful and important and, and gets us halfway there. So look, it's a negotiation. There are a lot of things that are left on the table. But what we did win was we won essential protections for every single part of our membership. There was no one left behind. And on the broad strokes, in principle, right, the principle that we should be paid more when our work is successful. The principle that the writer's room needs, needs to continue to exist. The principle that screenwriters should be protected from framework. The principle that comedy variety writers have parody. We won on all of those principles and all of those things that they said they would never, ever give us. They bent on all of them to some degree. And that is why this is like a huge victory for the Writers Guild. I mean, I just want to be really clear about this. We tripled their initial offer. Right. They initially offered something worth like 86 million a year. The total deal is worth 224 million dollars a year every year in perpetuity. That's also triple the size of the last deal we won in 2020. It's about half what you initially wanted, though. Of course. But, you know, the numbers always come down. But look at how much they went up. Yeah. Like it's absolutely massive. OK. The most important question. How many times during the strike did you eat for free at Swingers or Bob's Big Boy, courtesy <laughs> of Drew Carey? We all thank Drew Carey so much. Did you go all the time? I heard someone, a friend of mine went to Swingers and looked around and said it was all WGA people. I, I got to know the number. I got to know how much Drew spent. I wish I would know the number two, but you know what? Maybe you can go after transparency from Drew. If that, that can be what you he, get from him. He should totally leak it. It's got to be like, I, I would guess like what? Five million? Like, I mean, it, people were eating breakfast, breakfast, lunch, and dinner on Drew. And it was, it was such a great show of solidarity. And he's such a, he just loves those restaurants. You know, he was also like, th think about how, how much those restaurants must love him. Those just oh classic my diners. What, you know? what are they going to do now? It's incredible. All right. Well, Adam, thanks for coming on. Congrats on the deal. We will hopefully talk to you soon. Hey, thank you so much, man. Really appreciate it. We are back with the call sheet. Craig, we got to talk about this Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey thing. Of course, uh, all of your interests are aligned in one media story. Right. The world's most popular fake couple. Oh, how dare you? Come on. <laughs> 
I know she's got a movie coming out on October 13th, but this cannot just be a media stunt. I am looking at some of these numbers. They're crazy. Since this, According to front office sports, since Taylor Swift showed up to the Chiefs-Bears game last Sunday, there has been a 400% spike in Travis Kelsey jersey sales. His podcast is now ranking number one overall on Apple. He's gained almost 400,000 Instagram followers. The Chiefs game was the number one game of the week. 24.3 million viewers watched it. The jump in female viewers, 18 to 49, was 63%. And the stats go on and on and on here. So my prediction is that the Travis Kelsey Chiefs games for the rest of the year of the season are going to be up 5 to 10% in the ratings because of the Taylor Swift effect. For the rest of the year? For the rest of the season. You think Swifties are, are sticking around for the entire NFL season? Who knows if she's going to show up? Well, that's my question for you. How many games will she show up to for the rest of the season? All right, that is a good question. I think she's going to show up at his games until the movie comes out. I think yeah, this is weeks. very savvy promotion for her movie. And she would like this to be a four-quadrant movie, not just her fans, but she wants dudes who like football to go to the movie with their girlfriends. And this is, this is part <laughs> of the marketing plan. I'm going to predict one more game. They play Sunday night this week against the Jets in New York, or New Jersey, technically. I think she'll go to that game. It's Sunday night, New York, big deal, big markets. The next week, the Chiefs are at Minnesota. I'm sorry, she's not going to Minnesota to watch the Chiefs play the Vikings. She's just not. I think that is probably right. I was talking either home games or in cities that Taylor Swift deems desirable, whether it's LA, New York, Nashville. She will go to those games before her tour starts up. She's got her tour, I think in November, it starts up again. And after her movie comes out, I think she will never go to another game again. This is a real world's colliding event. On Twitter, there is a lot of great content out there of Taylor Swift fans being introduced to the sport of football and Travis oh, Kelsey. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of videos online of, of girlfriends telling their boyfriends that Taylor Swift is putting Travis Kelsey on the map and that she is doing a lot for his career and then boyfriends freaking out saying... Travis Kelsey doesn't need Taylor Swift to be put on the map. He's the most popular tight end of all time. Well, so he's a also a Super Bowl champion. Yeah, he's a Hall of Famer. He's one of the best players in the league. My favorite is the Swifties, like, learning the rules of football. Like, what are downs? Yes. What's a field goal? There's four downs. The goal is to get the ball in the end zone. What's the end zone? Oh, <laughs> uh, I think we're very cynical here. We, you know, this might be true love. She may come have found on, the one. Stop. Um, I know. And, but... The timing. I mean, come the fact that he mentioned it on a podcast and she's got a movie coming out and he is pretty clearly a fame whore. I mean, the, there was a reality show about his dating life like seven years ago. Like this is a guy who wants this attention, right? I tend to think so. Uh, the video of them walking out after the game looked like a middle school couple heading to a dance. They drove away in a convertible with like a blurred out license plate. Like, come on. All right, enough about that. This is not a gossip pod although we do enjoy Taylor Swift and NFL content. That's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Adam Conover. I want to thank uh, producer Craig Horlbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez, and we will see you later this week. 